Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. Today we're talking about a pretty serious issue. Um, and we sort of got the idea for it from doing our, our lifeguard summer short. Because in, in reading all about lifeguards and water safety, we came across some pretty startling statistics about minority children and their swim abilities. According to a USA Swimming study in 2010, which is, it was quoted all over the internet because the statistics are just completely shocking. Uh, nearly 70% of African American and 60% of Hispanic or Latino children have low to no swim ability compared to 40% of Caucasian kids. And that's so startling because it puts African American kids especially at a very high risk of drowning. African American kids actually drown at a rate nearly three times higher than their white peers. And the CDC has also looked into this, and they found that nearly 80% of drowning victims are male especially, and it's kids between the ages of one and four years old, and they also emphasize that minority gap. Right, yeah. They looked at uh, the years 2005 to 2009 and found that the fatal unintentional drowning rate for African Americans was slightly higher than that of whites across all ages, but the disparity is widest among kids 5 to 14. And they point out that drowning rates among African Americans increase throughout childhood and peak at the 15 to 19-year-old period. Yeah, because uh, they might, especially for boys, there were a lot of anecdotes shared about um, boys who might be horsing around, around a pool, around a body of water, mm-hmm. and might want to show off some kind of swimming ability, but they've never been taught. They didn't grow up in a pool or around pools, um, and that dramatically increased their risk of drowning. So people have been digging into why that gap exists. And it has a lot to do when we're talking about um, this high rate of minorities not knowing how to swim. It when, Once you start digging into it, you find generational cycles of fear. And <laughs> that fear starts to make sense when you understand the historical context of when public swimming pools uh, became more commonplace in the U.S. But first, let's talk about those um, those parental perceptions of today's parents when it comes to swimming. And this is coming from that USA Swimming report, and they were interviewing minority parents trying to figure out uh, why they weren't getting their kids in swim programs, why they weren't taking their kids to pools. Yeah, there are several risk factors um, specific to minorities. Those are ba- uh, barriers like pool availability, transportation, finances, and discretionary time. But the big one, like Kristen said, is fear and inexperience. So both of those are tied in together, and so that plays a major role. And for some parents, swimming is just something that they were never exposed to. Mm-hmm. And so they never learned to swim. And so their idea of keeping their children safe is not to teach them how to swim and how to be safe in and around water, but to just keep them away from water altogether. Yeah, and even more specifically, the parents express um, feelings that swimming is an activity for white kids. 
You yeah. know, uh, it wasn't something for them. There were also um, concerns about hair. You know, you get hair wet, you're going to have to fix it again. Um, it'll be stripped by chlorine and then having to spend even more money, not only to get the kids in a pool, but then to, to fix their hair afterwards if necessary. Right. They, they found in this USA Swimming study that actually no parents who had above average swimming ability discourage their kids from swimming. So this is something that gets passed down. Mm-hmm. If you either are a swimmer yourself or if you feel that it's important enough to put your kids in lessons or expose them to water frequently, then you're going to be more likely to have kids who are safe around water mm-hmm. and not be afraid of it. Yeah. Um, the Some of the low-income families that they interviewed said that they wouldn't even want to take advantage of free swimming lessons. Like, it just didn't seem like a vital skill for mm-hmm. a child to have. Uh, for instance, one African-American mom said her priority is paying insurance, which makes total sense, over paying for swim lessons. A Latina mom said activities like mariachi or soccer are more important. Um, and then you get those, you know, the cultural tie-ins with that. Uh but if you look at American history, the what's the race relations around public pools are disturbing. Right. Um, just to give you some background of why we even have pools dotted around neighborhoods to begin with, um, in the 1920s and 30s, uh, New Deal money funneled $750 million on community recreation facilities. And with that, you have a slew of pools, municipal pools, being built. Right. And leading up to this, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, we had a lot of municipal pools being built. And they were being built uh, in poor immigrant working class white neighborhoods, but not so much in uh, neighborhoods with predominantly black residents. And so it doesn't seem like it's a class issue necessarily, but more specifically just along race lines. And this is coming from an interview uh, on NPR with Dr. Jeff Wiltz uh, from the University of Montana, who wrote uh, Contested Waters, A Social History of Swimming Pools in America. And he, he talks about the, the growth of swimming pools and how in the 1920s and 30s there was really that pool building spree, as he calls it, when thousands of huge resort-style pools were opened that ended up attracting millions of swimmers. And while these municipal pools were open to everybody, mm-hmm. emphasizing again, like you just mentioned, that it wasn't this issue of class, um, very quickly segregation started. Racial segregation began at these pools um, where in these large outdoor resort style pools that Wiltz talks about were typically reserved for white patrons. Mm-hmm. And if any pools at all were reserved for uh, black patrons, it was usually, they were usually small indoor pools that really weren't that appealing in the hot summertime. You want to be outside in the sun and jumping in that water. But you also want something that's close enough to walk to, probably. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you are. Uh, either a white patron in one of those using one of those municipal pools or using a um, a resort style pool, it might be closer to you based on the number of pools that were built. Right. But if you are a black resident who did not even have access to something that was that close to you and the pool itself was not that great, you would probably be less likely to go. And also let's talk about the threat of violence. If you were to go, if the closest pool to you was um, predominantly white, you go if you were living in, say, Pittsburgh in 19. 19- 
31, and you went to the Highland Park Pool, which Wiltz talks about in his interview, uh, white swimmers would beat black swimmers who tried to use the pool. The city did not have an official stance on uh, racial segregation when it came to the public swimming pools, but it just became this thing that if black swimmers tried to go, you were gonna get you were gonna get your butt kicked in exactly. water. Exactly. Yeah, so there was this history of either violence and intimidation keeping African American swimmers out or official segregation using police officers and city officials to keep people out. Um but there was also um a desegregation of gender going on at the same time that the pool started to segregate by race. Mm -hmm. And so there was this whole idea like, okay, we're in this intimate space where people are kind of scantily clad. And there was the racism issue of we don't want our white women around black males. Yeah, Wiltz actually argues in Contested Waters that that a racist and gendered issue of not wanting to keep the white women protected from uh, black males, especially since there were not many clothes being worn in a pool setting. That, that was the most salient point when it comes to this issue of racism and public pools. And then on top of that, there are also these racist notions going around um, that we've brought up before, talking about um, the movie The Help, where um, one of the women doesn't want her black maid to use the toilet because of these similar racist notions that blacks were dirtier and carried more communicable diseases. You put everybody in a pool together, and oh my goodness, you might be you know catching some kind of dirty thing from these people and also endangering these women. And Wiltz points out that the movement of whites away from using city pools when desegregation starts to happen with the civil rights movement, um, that that white flight from the pools was more pronounced and white flight that we often hear about from neighborhoods. And especially if we're talking regionally, this is happening the most, he says, too, in the North and the West, not so much in the South, as you might assume. Hmm. Maybe everybody's just so hot Maybe so. in the South. Well, and it's, with, and it's with that, that racist fear, you have the rise of people building more pools in their own backyards, building mm-hmm. pools in municipal neighborhoods to where if you're not a member of a neighborhood civic association, you're not going to come to the pool. Right. And so, yeah, you have this movement, this white flight from pools and this trend of building more private pools that just drew a lot of white people away from those city pools. So all of a sudden there's less support less money. And that trend is actually still continuing. There's Mm -hmm. still a trend of municipal city pools not having the same support financially or otherwise. And they're actually being closed at a rapid rate. And so most people still today who want to access pools have to go about through a private association of some sort. And unfortunately, racism at private pools does still exist. Uh, this happened in summer of 2009 at a Northeast Philadelphia private pool. Um, 60 African-American kids who are attending a day camp in Northeast Philadelphia were turned away from a private swim club because of their race. This stance by the white pool owner was so egregious that U.S. Senator Arlen Specter, uh, who is the senator from Pennsylvania, actually came out and said the allegations against the swim club, as they reported, are extremely disturbing. I'm reaching out to all parties involved to ascertain the facts. Racial discrimination has no place in America today. But that racial discrimination, you know, happens so much around these city pools. And I don't think that many people know about it. Yeah. I was not aware of it before. Um, we happened across this information researching mm-hmm. stuff on lifeguards. We weren't even thinking about it. Exactly. Well, so 
there are a lot of strategies out there to try to increase minority uh, participation in swimming, whether just recreational swimming, actual swim teams, or just learning how to be safe in and around water. And the USA Swimming Report, they did this uh, in 2010, like I said, in combination with the University of Memphis, who had done a previous study. And so USA Swimming kind of wanted to... They were kind of shocked by the statistics yeah. that, that the university found, and so they wanted to back them up. But they re- uh, they recommend uh, trying to recognize finances versus fear. Like we talked about, there's an issue of finance, but there's an issue of pass-down fear and worries about water. And they said that while many parents identified cost as a prohibitive factor, for many, fear, either for their child or for swimming, was closely tied in. And the thing is, too, the parents of kids today are not that far removed in all likelihood from the days when going to the pool either meant having to go out of the way to go to a subpar facility that was set apart for black swimmers or going to one that was open to blacks and whites, but then risking uh, fear and intimidation by, by white swimmers. Yeah. Another recommendation is peer or parent-to-parent mentoring and diversity clinics. Basically, have parents work with each other to encourage them to get their kids to a pool, learn how to swim, be safe around water. But other ideas were, were clinics, either diversity clinics, which were specifically meant to draw more minority children in, or just free clinics, or maybe paying on a sliding scale of some sort to get people to go and say, okay, well, maybe I do have the time, but I don't have the money, so I'll try out this free clinic. Mm-hmm. Well, and it seems like a lot of that, too, is tied to building up maybe role models, swimming role models within smaller communities, because we don't see that many high-profile African-American swimmers. We're starting to see more. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, 28-year-old African-American swimmer Colin Jones is an Olympic gold medalist. He brought home the gold with Team USA last summer Olympics, um, and he was only the third black swimmer from the U.S. to do so. Yeah. Bring home a medal. And he is participating uh, with USA Swimming's Make a Splash initiative, which was launched in 2007, uh, to go on a six-city national water safety tour to educate parents, kids, and communities about the importance of learning to swim. Because he himself almost drowned at the age of five at a water park, after which his mother promptly enrolled him in swim lessons. And this eventually led to a college scholarship. And he was saying that, you know, he tries to tell kids, look, I didn't start out as an Olympic swimmer. Mm -hmm. You know, I almost died. Uh, It's something you have to work at. And that's something, that's another uh, trend that kind of comes up over and over again in these studies is that it's not basketball, as one parent says, where your kid can just jump into it, start playing, you know, get better, whatever. Swimming is something you you have to learn Mm -hmm. and, and get better and better at because, I mean, it could kill you if you are unsafe in water. Yeah. I mean, it almost happened to me. I almost drowned as well. Exactly. Um, and Jones also addresses that issue of not having many minorities around him in the sport. Um, he said, I think speaking to ESPN, it's still a white-dominated sport. I think that kind of pushes kids away from it a little bit. Yeah. So he's basically using his fame in the best way possible to mm-hmm. encourage more kids to swim and be safe. And this USA Swimming Make a Splash initiative that I mentioned that was launched in 2007 is really meant to enlighten political leaders about the disparities of aquatic activities because, like Chris and I were saying, we had no idea that it was this uh, stark, Mm -hmm. that this many children did not have the same access or opportunity to learn how to swim or the same desire to do so. Right. 
And there are also more grassroots efforts going on to try to bridge this minority gap at the pool, such as Diversity in Aquatics, which was founded by two Penn State athletes after they learned about the disparity in drowning rates. And they're seeking to educate, dispel stereotypes, and provide those role models. And also, um, we learned about the Josh Project from CNN, which is a nonprofit that provides low-cost swimming lessons for children in Toledo, Ohio. And it was founded by a woman named Wanda Butts after her 16-year-old son drowned while rafting on a lake with friends because he'd never learned to swim. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And she talked about her own fear of water, how she had never taught her son to swim. So it's basically in that little, it's like a microcosm of everything that study talked about. Yeah, the generational cycle, the fear, and then this increased risk of drowning. Um, So I hope that this was enlightening for listeners. It was certainly enlightening for me and also enlightening in in a sad way because it's uh the history is so is so fraught with so much racism on so many different levels that you don't think about when you're going to sun yourself maybe yeah. at the pool. I yeah, I had no idea. I, well, when I was a kid, I belonged to a neighborhood pool, but there were black and white children there. I know, I didn't as a kid, I did not even know what a municipal pool was. <laughs> I didn't I I thought that everybody's pools were in neighborhoods. Yeah. I had no idea that there were city pools. Well, and I think speaking of city pools though, there there's also a stereotype of city pools not being as well kept up as say like a private neighborhood pool. Mm-hmm. They're larger, they may be dirtier. And um I actually uh lived for a while here in Atlanta right next to um a park pool. And I had a pass for it. And it was great. And it was huge. And it was well kept. I mean, there were a ton of people there. Mm-hmm. But um, it was totally fine. And it was it was fun to go hang out in my park and, you know, support my city at the same time. And get a little bit of a suntan. But safely. Safely. Sunscreen. SPF 1000. <laughs> so that's all we have today uh, for the podcast. If you have thoughts on this, though, uh, swimmers out there, have you experienced this kind of racism older listeners do you remember these days of segregation at the pool um let us know your thoughts mom stuff at discovery.com and in the meantime we've got two letters here about mothers working or not working yeah this one is from stephanie she said i hold a doctorate in sociology from georgia state so i loved hearing all the sociology in this episode i am a working mom to an almost four-year-old and have wanted to talk about concerted cultivation i involve my daughter in activities to learn skills socialize have fun and so on but here's the other reason she's involved it provides additional child care when i am sitting there waiting for my daughter to tumble or swim or whatever it is i am almost always working I might be reading for class, grading papers, revising a paper, or I might have my laptop open using the Wi-Fi connection to teach an online class. I think all this activities madness has as much to do with working moms needing additional pockets of time for work-related activities as developing children. Don't get me wrong, even if I didn't need the time for work, she would still be in activities, but they might be cut back a bit. Thanks, Stephanie. And I've got one here from Candace, who is currently a stay-at-home mom with four children, From infant to eight years old, she writes, When I look back on my first year of motherhood, I was dying to go back to the workplace, to do anything, anything to get me out of the house. But I also knew that my baby needed me close to her. And because I was breastfeeding, I felt it necessary to do so. To me, half the battle of breastfeeding is the ability to stay and be close to your child. It's certainly not all sunshine and roses. I'm not a stay-at-home mom because it didn't make sense for me to continue working. 
As I have added more children to my brood, I've also found myself more content with my lot in life. Though it's true I don't have a lot of leisure time, as defined by time where I can do whatever pursuits I want without something else demanding my time and attention, I like how, for the most part, our lives are not hectic. I am not a stay-at-home mom because it didn't make sense for me to continue working. I have to wonder if my husband earned less money than he does if I would be nearly as, quote-unquote, happy. I don't think so. I am still able to pursue things that interest me intellectually, and on the side, I also manage our side business from home. It's not the most exciting job, but I still get paid for my work, and I'm happy to be contributing to the family coffers as well. I think I will probably go back to a paying job eventually, though when we discussed it, thus far, the negatives outweigh the positives. So thanks to Candace and everybody else who has written in. Momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send your letters. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. And you can check out what we're doing during the week at our website. It's HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?